It's working. Look, you're banging all the 20-year-old cowboys. It's fine. The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Sex Lives, New York Magazine's talk show about sex. I'm Maureen O'Connor. Usually when I'm listening to or reading someone else's story, the goal is just to understand that person, what her life is like or how it feels to be her. But every now and then, learning about someone else's life changes the way I understand my own and the possibilities for my own life. And that happened to me twice in the last two years, both times reading personal essays written by this week's guest, the New York-based writer Glynis McNichol. Each of those essays was written around a landmark birthday for her. One was when she turned 40 and realized she didn't want to have children. And the second, about the exhilarating freedom of being single at age 41. Each of those I read when I was turning 30 and 31, respectively. And ever since then, she's sort of been on my mind when I think about aging, dating, and how you organize your life. Welcome, Glynis. Thank you so much. Was that a really intense introduction? That was just what I needed this month. I can't even tell you. Well, it's interesting. So those two essays, each published one year apart, were sort of directly about aging. The first one published at nymag.com was called I'm 40. I don't want to be a mom. Now what? Thank you, New York Magazine, for that title, by the way. (laughs) From then on, every Google search of me, that was the first result. Your love, I bet dating got really interesting after that. (laughs) I went on a date shortly after that, and the guy was like, hi, I don't want kids either. And I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) That's the way we're sorting things now. (laughs) Fabulous. Before we get into that, the second one, then, the unexpected, exhilarating freedom of being single at 41. Much better title. (laughs) tells us sort of what happened in the intervening Mm -hmm. year to some degree. Mm -hmm. That one over the last year, I think I have forwarded to more females than like anything. Thank you. It opens up with you having this like extraordinarily romantic night in Montana being propositioned by a rugged 20-year-old cowboy and turning him down because your single life is so great. Can you just read the first two paragraphs of of that so our audience can understand what I'm talking about? (laughs) Because these are literally, I got to the end of the second paragraph and I was already being like, print, keep forever, new life goal. Didn't know I had it. Oh, this is such a good title. I can't believe this was a year ago. I feel like this election has been like a before and after. This past September, on the eve of my 41st birthday, I was propositioned by a 20-year-old cowboy I barely knew. Do you want to have sex with me, he said to me, with a directness and confidence that, even though we were in the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming, would do a New Yorker proud. Standing alone in the darkness with an unfamiliar man could have been unnerving, but in this case it was mostly amusing, even heartening. I had been living on a dude ranch for the month of August, disengaging from my life as much as possible after a year of intense highs and lows, and the entire place radiated openness, adventure, and anticipation. Even in the dark, this young man showed the swagger of all the wranglers here, Men who wear their jeans exactly the way Levi must have dreamed they should be worn. And yet, despite the cinematic quality of the scene, I turned him down. Him. Really? (laughs) I was like, really? (laughs) Partly because I had to be up in two hours to drive to the airport and still hadn't packed. But also because over the past year, I'd regularly found myself a source of interest to younger men. Men traveling the country on motorcycles, ex-Marines, graduate students, making this encounter somewhat commonplace. I'd stop thinking about it as some sort of anomaly, a one-off opportunity I needed to grab or forever lose the chance. I knew what I wanted, and at this moment, it was not this. I think there's something about that, that the power of 
not wanting something that is part of what's so completely exhilarating about. Yes. I've really been thinking about how, I love that word exhilarating. It so captured it, but how exhilarating it was to be so fearful about turning 40 because you, I think, are subtly conditioned to think like, I no longer will be attractive. I'll no longer be, my sexual life will go away. Like all of these things that you're, these fears that sort of encompass that birthday and to find out the, the exact opposite was true. And then also to be like, eh, all right, well, I don't like, now I can say no. Like the but the power to yeah. say no to things was such a high for me. It was so fun. That, I mean, that's sort of an, an idea you, you sort of mentioned actually in the Motherhood article, too, that you mm -hmm. point out that as soon as you're free from the feeling of, like, I need something specific, you're free to say no to anything mm -hmm. or just sort of, I don't know, do things totally differently. Shortly after I wrote that article, I went to Paris for a trip and mm -hmm. I met this guy in Paris. We were just he introduced himself to me as we were walking along. It was shortly after the terrorist attack, so everything was really intense, and we started talking. And he turned out to be working in tourism, and he asked me to come have coffee with him the next day. And I was like, sure. So he's like, meet me at the statue at the top of the Pont Neuf at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and so we meet, and, we, and he walks me to his favorite bistro, and our coffee turns into wine, turns into dinner. And he's like, do you have to go? Can I walk you to the metro? And I said, sure. So it's a full moon in Paris. We're walking back through the Louvre. There's a violin player. Like, literally ridiculous. You just have to, like, have sex at that moment, right? Is it yes. a rule? Well, you come. It's so funny because we walked out, and I just thought, a year ago, in my mind, I already would have been, like, five steps down. Like, is this somebody I can see myself with? Where is this going? All those thoughts that tend to go through your head of, like, yeah. this all feels really romantic. Does it mean something? Like, should I be planning it? And literally, he was, like, holding my hand, and he went to kiss me. And in my head, I'm like, what is his name? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally what I thought. And I was like... This was fun. Okay, I, I was on deadline because I was in, on deadline for New York for an uncle. I was like, okay, I have to go now. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, I have things to do. But it really sort of it, it made me think two things. It made me think dating now, nothing feels like it requires permanence because uh -huh. I'm perfectly okay with the alternative, which is just me. Secondly, it made me understand the behavior of men in my 30s when I was dating some men, not all of them, but mm -hmm. this sense of like not not taking this seriously, but I'm just taking this as like a fun. I just met you. This could be fun. I don't think it means anything was something when I encountered in my 30s with men, I could find devastating depending on how much I enjoyed the date. I'd be like, didn't this mean something to you? Ah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because I just was like. I think I'm the dude now. Like that was really what well, you're I, free to actually just be selfish in the sense of not like selfish being not disrespectful to other people. Yeah. But it's that you're just literally thinking, what do I want in this moment? Yeah. I need to go finish my article. Yeah. You know, I am. And he was like, but and it's this has happened to me so many times where and you keep hearing from these guys and like, and well, why don't we do this? And I'm like, OK, I have things to do, but maybe we can do this later. You know, like I just have a much more enjoyable attitude towards dating what is it like to willfully reject men and not care <laughs> it's really it's, da it's dangerous in the sense of like i'm like should i be dating more like dating is a muscle that's maybe sometimes good to keep in shape and sometimes i'm like well i think that muscle is most in shape when you're shooting men down I maybe have to say like actually the most dangerous rut to be in is when you've like had too many agreeable situations mm -hmm. and then you forget to use your evaluative thought when you're dating sometimes. completely i will say one more thing which is when you have that attitude, men 
find it so compelling in my experience. Like they don't really know what to do with it. And it used to be, you know, that old phrase, play hard to get Mm -hmm. when you're younger. This isn't me playing hard to get. It's literally me just either not paying attention or not being interested enough. Or you just don't care about whether or not you're gotten. There is no get or gotten. There is no get or gotten. And so it's I find now I'm like, when you hit your 40s, one of the fears is that you won't be attractive. And all that I have found now is that I'm more attractive to more men. <laughs> and I think it is partly because of this attitude that's like I've released myself from this expectation. This and- is the most inspiring thing <laughs> in the world, Glynis. <laughs> and- what? Okay, so release of that mm-hmm. and you're sort of like, well, maybe do, maybe don't, whatever, doing whatever the fuck you want. Mm-hmm. Does the sex itself change? Yes, because you know what you want. Mm-hmm. And this, I'm only speaking for myself. I also am 10 years older than you, as we talked about. And I am aware that of the different, there's a slight shift in expect. Like the internet wasn't around for my dating life until my mid 30s. So, like, you come ah. up, there's, and, uh, and along with that, if I wanted to read columns about sex, you were literally reading like the Dan Savage column once a week. There wasn't like a wider array of all of this mm-hmm. information and, and, and there also wasn't a wider array of porn, which <laughs> makes a difference for how. Yeah, you know, know, I'm aware and yet also feel so blessed to be come of age in the time I did. As much as there's so many pitfalls with the Internet and sex, Mm -hmm. like overall, I don't feel like a messed up, traumatized monster. I just feel like I've had a wonderful amount of information available to me. I think for women, it's largely been great. I can see, you know, Cindy Gallup's got her famous TED talk about dating younger men. Right. There is a big difference between 45 and 25, not in maturity level, but... Their idea of what sex is or stuff. How so? Like, you can see the influence of porn. You do. Mm-hmm. You, you can. Is that always bad? No, but maybe it's bad for. I mean, I have no qualms about saying a what I want or saying what I don't want. Or mm-hmm. there's no self consciousness. There's no like, well, he's still like me. Or yeah, this, like was this weird or is this not like not even? But there's weird. no like I've got to impress him. Oh like, yeah, me or. Wow, I ate too much chocolate this week. Should I not take off my? There's none of that. There's literally, it's lit. <laughs> all of those insecurities have just like fled the building. I just can't be bothered to let them take up space in my brain. That's what's changed. And inevitably, that changes so many other things because mm-hmm. you just are less caught up in what's supposed to be happening and more just like. Eh. So, you know, it's revealing and then was sort of wonderful. And I think part of why I glommed on to these so much is, Mm -hmm. as you point out, you're 10 years older than Mm -hmm. I am. My birthday is just a few days after yours, Mm -hmm. although 10 years behind. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think that, like, you know, we're on that same cycle of you sort of contemplate a lot of your life before and after Mm -hmm. when you switch decades. So, you know, I turn 30, you turn 40, and Mm -hmm. I look at that and I'm thinking, what's the next decade of my life going to be? And I'm like, well, here's a woman turning 40. Mm -hmm. This is one version. And it was a version that I sort of hadn't thought through or seen very many people mm-hmm. think through you yeah. know and when i turned 31 you and the funny thing is i remember sending the article about being 41 and mm-hmm. just being totally free to a bunch of my friends who are my age mm-hmm. and they're like damn i can't wait till i'm 41 and i get to live that way and i was like you guys we can do this right now and that was the craziness was that for whatever reason mm-hmm. it was just like the idea that you can just sort of liberate your expectations in mind yeah it can happen at any age, yeah. but it was the strangeness that for a brief moment, a bunch of people are like, that'll be great. And it is true that it can be really hard to escape certain pressures until you sort of reach whatever mental switch you reach. Also, physical ones, too. Let's, mm-hmm. I'm just not saying I couldn't have a kid now if I yeah. wanted, but there is some sort of deadline that 40, for better or worse, and whether or not this happens in reality, is really premised as a major deadline in women's lives. You know, I go right back to when Harry met Sally, when she's like... And I'm going to be 40. And he goes, 
in eight years. And she goes, but it's there, like a great big deadline on the horizon waiting for me. And I just think that is how it is premised for women for so long that it's easier to release yourself of these expectations once you cross it because you're like, yeah, maybe they don't apply to me anymore anyway. Hey there, Sex Lives fans. This is Afim Shapiro. I produced the show along with Alana Milner. I'm really interested in hearing your stories, and I'd like to follow up with some of you to see if we can get you on the show to talk more about your sex lives. As you grow older, as you mature, how does that affect your confidence, your self-image? And then how does that reflect on your dating life, on your sex life? Uh, The number here is 646-494-3590. Give us a call. All of us will listen to your stories, and we may call you back and ask you to come on the show. 646-494-3590. Leave a message, and you may hear from us. It is so strange that, of all things, for women in particular, we have such a specific, like, single 30 and flirty. Yeah. Single 40 and stressed out. I don't know. That there's sort of... Or spinster or old maid. There's we don't have we don't not anyone's using the word spinster or old maid anymore. But I yeah. you know crazy aunts or it's still a little bit out there. It's changing. I mean it's changing yeah. because I turned forty and I was like, well this isn't my life. And now I have the capacity to write about it. But mm-hmm. even I went moon. Remember the movie Moonstruck with Cher? She got married young. She was a widower. They were only married for a year. And now she's premised as like she's thirty seven. She's got graying hair. She dresses like a spinster. She's about to marry this man she doesn't love. Because if she doesn't get married to him, there's that's it. He's her last chance. And he goes to visit his sick mother in Sicily. It's Danny Aiello who plays the guy she's supposed to marry, like really uptight. Mm-hmm. And he says, I have to make amends with my brother. Go make amends with him and invite him to the wedding. It's Nicolas Cage. And they meet. And it's just like, ba-boom. And she like slaps him. And they... Uh, they oh, I love it. Fall into bed with each other. <laughs> anyway, so she goes, the famous scene in this, even as a kid, is that she goes, she says, meet me at the opera. And she goes and gets a makeover and she gets like her hair, the gray out of her hair. And she buys a red dress with red shoes and gets lipstick put on. And just as she's walking out of the salon, you hear Joan Cusack's voice, who was her hairdresser, go. And then she turned 40 and her husband left her. And I just thought, even in the background of movies, there's this, it just felt really um, reflective of me that in the background of so many things is, if you as a woman don't have certain things nailed down, you risk losing them forever. And even if you do, the chances are you'll lose them when you get to a certain age anyway. Which is silly. You just go to the hair salon and get the gray out. <laughs> like, if the gray's really stressing you out, there, we got a lot of ways to get rid of that. And it's funny, though, because this is this was I, when I wrote an article about burning, burned out really badly. And when I wrote an article about burning out, uh, I talked to a therapist who specialized and she was like, she had reconfigured her practice to deal with women under the age of 30 because they were burning out at such a high rate. And I said, why is that? And she said, when you were growing up in the 80s, the entire narrative around women and fertility was that you can get pregnant well into your 40s. And all the covers of Time magazines were like, this 45-year-old woman had her first children. And it's it was like a, this expectation that you could have children forever. And that switched sometime in the 90s to you can't get pregnant after the age of 35. And the flip side of that is I went through my 20s never literally thinking about whether or not I would have kids. Like, it wasn't even factor. Maybe this is another reason that for whatever reason I kept being like, I feel exactly like this woman, but she's also a decade older than me. Yep. Why do I think I'm on the exact same it narrative as her? It completely switched. And she said all these women now are coming out of college and trying to race through their 30s to have all of their ducks in order so that they can get married at 30 and have all their kids before 35 when fertility stops. And she's like, in your generation— 
you were encouraged to think that fertility to go through to 45. Neither of them are were true. There any, was there any actual science that made people switch those narratives? The science that we have was an Atlantic article that said the science we have in fertility dates back to the 19th century. It's, yeah. It's really dated anyway. I think what happened was every woman thought she'd get pregnant at age 45. And, and some didn't. of them didn't. Okay. <laughs> so then we flip it back to being like, you know, the, I mean, it's the fear fact. It's just those sorts of articles that we all know, I think, tend to strike right at the heart of everyone's fear and switch your mentality about age and value and fertility is key. There's no way that a woman's view of their life is not keyed into your fertility from a young age. It's just how your body works. So Mm -hmm. it's always there. To return back to a moment ago, you were talking about having sex with men, say, in their (laughs) 20s versus their 40s. The biggest difference I find is that it could be that younger men are expecting a certain level of like performative orgasm, whatever. Mm -hmm. But they are really geared towards thinking about things like orgasms or about different ways of getting there and such. And I don't know if it's just some strange sample pool. Well, I'm not sampling from like the largest pool of men, so I can't. If not speaking for all men, I will say two things. Get back to work, Glennis. We need a definitive answer. Can I come back in a week? (laughs) I think that uh, I'm painting generations in broad strokes, which isn't fair. Uh, In my experience, older men, and this, you know, sometimes when you're dating somebody in their mid-40s, they've been married for a while and they're coming out of a divorce. Like, it's like there's whole other expectations that go on there. They themselves can be nervous and insecure because they haven't been on the dating scene or I think there's more patience. Ah, This is a loaded thing to say, and I'm hesitant to say it. I find sometimes with not just men, with people in their early 20s, sex can be more transactional, which isn't mm-hmm. good or bad if you're comfortable with that. But if yeah. you're not comfortable with that, that can be tough, I think. And that is where I think maybe porn has, <clears throat> when you know, I was in university in the 90s and Nobody thought that everybody was having sex. But when I talk to Mm -hmm. people that are 22 now, the amount of sex they're having and the amount of partners they're having it with, I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Transactional. But the funny thing is that I do think— I'm just like, that's not a fair thing to say about ever. Like, before, you know, I'm aware that— that's true. (laughs) I mean, if there's one thing that I'd be proud of my generation for, although it's not. Like, statistically, we know— I mean, I think that within certain yes. groups or the type, it's possible to like run totally amok in this day and age, which and happens I, to be a thing I think is wonderful. Right. But. As long as you think it's wonderful. Yes. When I get concerned about it is when I talk to women who are in their early 20s and they don't think it's wonderful, they think it's expected. And yeah. that is where or they feel like they've been trampled in the running yeah. amokness. Or they think, oh, well, if, you know, well, of course we had sex. We're just, that's what you do on a first date. And I'm like, well, yeah. You so can go I, home and deal with your deadlines if you feel like you it. You could go home and have a bath and have some chocolate if you wanted to. <laughs> so that's the difference. And I think yeah. it doesn't. I think it can be fun for me because I know exactly what I want and I don't want. And I have no qualms about stating that if I was 22 right now. I mean, but I'm not 22 right now. So who, and I didn't grow up with the Internet. So I don't. It's yeah. hard for me to say when I talk to women that age, I struggle with like I'm worried that I worry for them that it's transactional when they're not worried about it. Sometimes I have the conversation where I'm like, you're supposed to be enjoying sex. Yeah. That's where it comes down to it. Do you like what, what's going on? Yeah. That's the difference I have noticed. I've noticed that older men are far more into the, uh, far more girls about it. They want, you know, more. They want, <laughs> there's a, they want a little bit more like, I want to wine and dine you. And which is so funny because part of me is like, oh, my God, I have things to do. <laughs> I love that now you've become a 22-year-old man now that you've become 42. You finally know. Oh, my God. That sounds 
so fun. It's it's only partially true. But yes, I think that there's that aspect to it. For me to carve time out of my day, I'm like, you really make it worth my while. So I've had this yeah. experience so often when I'm out. It's different on Tinder because my age is on there. Mm-hmm. But I'll be out with uh, when I'm traveling and you go out on whatever travel dates or whatever. And I had this guy, this guy in Rome. It was like, he was a model, and he was like took me, met me in a coffee shop, and he's like wandering me around Rome. It's the same, the whole same deal. And he oh says to me, "How old are you?" And I said, "Oh, you know." And he goes, "What are you? 27, 28? And I went, "No," <laughs> but also, please. He goes, "What? 34, 35?" And I go, "Yeah, 35." And he goes, "Well, that's." He goes, "Wow, you look very young." And I'm like, "I'm 42." <laughs> But sometimes when I tell Where people, we get this idea? I don't know. I went on a cruise for a travel story last year and everyone on the cruise was 70 and they wouldn't believe me that I was 40. I had to, they wanted Trump and were trying to fix me up with their 26 year old sons. And I'm not flattered. This is I'm representative of like so many women my age. We just look younger. And so the way the world responds to us face to face is very different than the way sort of in the media, for lack of a better word, or the larger sort of. Our societal expectations of 40 are much different than— It's so strange that that expectation hasn't caught up. It hasn't. So when I tell people how old I am, they're always shocked. Is it because you haven't gone through the stress of having a baby? I don't ever believe that. I've gone through the stress of I eat chocolate milkshakes for a month because this election is stressing (laughs) me out. Like, that's—I also think—I know plenty of people that have kids and look fantastic. I do think having a kid is a really hard thing. Uh, Everyone I know who has children looks very beautiful. Yeah, I think not shade. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but it's funny, like what we expect age to look like and what it does look like are so disconnected right now that I'd like to see that expectation in sort of the larger idea of age, as opposed to just my day to day life where I have so much fun with it. Now you're 42, <laughs> mm-hmm. still single, mm-hmm. still not moving rapidly towards being a mom, <laughs> if if ever, at least. Yeah. Yes, and you're turning those ideas into a book. Yes, a memoir called Good Driving. Tell me about how you found yourself single and questioning motherhood at age 40 in the wow, first place. This is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've, I've been writing quite a lot about it, so it's very much on my mind. I think uh, a couple of things. I think my career took off in my early 30s that mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun in my 20s <laughs> mm-hmm. and a lot. And, and I don't regret that. But I think I'd, right around age 30, I had this moment where I was like, get your shit together and let's go. And so I kicked it into overdrive and work sucked up everything for, say, the next five or six years, which was great. And I think I got to sort of 35 or 36 and I was like, oh, I hate this phrase so much, but you're really aware of the of the clock of, and it's not just like the biological clock, it's the sense of there's a diminishing window for me to set these things up in my life if I want them. That if I want children and I don't want to have them on my own, mm-hmm. Then like, you do you start doing the mathematical equation. Well, if I meet somebody in the next six months and we get married in the next year, then I can have a baby in a year from that. And then it'll all be set up. And I sort of went into this yeah. headspace of like every date I went on had to be – was this leading somewhere? I had a guest who called that the reverse timeline. Andrea Salenzi yes. called it that. It's a different form of planning than I think the way we plan the rest of our lives. Yep. And our personal lives, for some reason, we're counting backwards. It's a countdown. Yes. It, you're abs- I think women start counting backwards from the time they go through puberty. It's like you start counting backwards. The clock starts ticking down. In writing this book after turning 40, when I sort of felt like I'd been released of sort of thinking this way, I started realizing how much it infiltrates the way you think, even as much— 
When I wrote for women's magazines, I'd be told not to include anyone over the age of 37 in stories. Whoa. That's not our demographic. That's not what the advertisers want. And you realize that once you sort of step out of this being, uh, I don't want to say a guiding force because that gives it too much, but you step out of this even being a decision in your life, you start to realize that it's just everywhere. I lost total interest in all fashion magazines entirely because I'd look at them and be like, I don't know, I'm so bored by this. (laughs) But you realize it's just there constantly. But the funny thing is, is when I got to the point where I was like, you really should start thinking about this. Like right at age 30, there's this weird period between 37 and 40. You know, Cheryl Strait's talked about it too. I've heard sort of this weird gauntlet where everything shifts into, if you really want these things, you has to be your number one focus. Like, Mm -hmm. Go, go, go. And I, in, I, in my mind, was like, you're making really good decisions in your dating life right now. And I was making terrible. I was dating the most inappropriate people. Like, I just, I like the reality of my life in this pressure cooker versus what I thought I was doing. There was such a disconnect because I don't think I wanted to be married or have these things. I think there was just this fear of what would my life look like if I didn't have them. When you say that you're making bad dating choices, you're dating people who weren't right for you, but just seemed deeply. right for some imaginary narrative. Yeah, and just inappropriate. Like, just not good in many levels. But, like, virile? I mean, <laughs> what, what possibly made them good? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, there's that. But, useful uh, for procreation. Right. right. <laughs> useful for procreation. Um, maybe. <laughs> uh, I think, though, that part of me was, like, I didn't know what my life could look like There was nothing out there to tell me my life could be worthwhile or enjoyable or meaningful alone. Mm -hmm. And I think not having any evidence of what it could look like left me with this sort of default assumption that I needed these things. The reason I think I kept dating inappropriately was that I actually didn't want to be, I didn't want to be in a long-term relationship. I didn't want the family And so I was sort of undermining myself with these decisions where on the one hand, I'm like, well, you're out there trying to figure out how to make this work. And the other half was like, yeah, (laughs) let's pick pick the people that are going to really ensure that these this won't happen. So you're simultaneously saying I'm looking for somebody I could be with and then spending your time being like this square peg doesn't fit in the round hole. I guess I can't feel that hole as opposed to I don't want that hole. Yes. I got overly sexual in that metaphor. I apologize. (laughs) It is a sex podcast. You know, I often wonder this because people have told me before that I was for various periods of time in my life making undermining dating choices. And I was like, or am I having fun? Like, Mm -hmm. yes, (laughs) it only seems undermining if you assume the end goal is a monogamous lifetime relationship. If that isn't the end goal, then it's like. If you're eating food that doesn't have a ton of protein in it, but you aren't trying to build muscle mass, it's not like you're undermining your muscle building. You're just eating what you feel like eating. A hundred percent. What I have come to realize is that I actually really enjoy being by myself and I really Mm -hmm. enjoy being alone. And that was something I felt, I don't know if ashamed of is the wrong word, but I felt like there was something wrong with me for being this good at being by myself. Does that make sense? It took me a long time to figure out that I'm like, Oh, I kind of like I kind of prefer this. That's like that's an okay thing. Like I actually I'm because I think women are never encouraged to be by themselves. And what do you mean by by yourself and alone? Exactly how my life is right now. Not in a long term relationship, not with a child. There's very little out there that encourages women to think of that as a successful way to live. I think largely what happened was I turned 40 and Mm -hmm. I looked around as we all do for stories that sort of reflect the way that we're living. And there was 
nothing. There were no stories about women in their 40s, just in general. They were either Mm -hmm. they became stories about being a wife or being a wife and a mother, but it was always sort of an accessory to, to something else. And there was nothing about being a woman. The title Good Driving which may change, but it's a quote from Thelma and Louise. It's at the mm-hmm. very end of Thelma and Louise, right as they've sort of escaped the police that are chasing them, uh-huh. right before they realize that they are about to be recaught and go off a cliff, Thelma turns to Louise and says, good driving. And she goes, thanks. And I just always love that moment because I think women are so rarely recognized or congratulated for being the navigators of their own life, even mm-hmm. on a most basic level as drivers, but in the larger scream as being narrators of their own life. And so I spent my entire 40th year feeling the lack of narratives around me, feeling like I couldn't see myself reflected anywhere. I didn't know how to navigate going forward. What did my life mean? Where was I supposed to be going? And sort of by the end of that year, I was like, you are a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps you should stop writing about how terrible it is that there's no stories and start writing your own story. And it just so happened that that year lent itself between sort of this realization that I didn't want kids and the family stuff that was going on. And then also I was traveling a lot. It sort of had its own narrative that lent itself to a lot of the issues I was struggling with. Yeah, I just hope you don't fly off a cliff after your realization that you're good at driving. Well, this is what drives me crazy about Thelma and Louise. It's the story we keep coming back to is one of the few female narratives of women on the road, but not just on the road, like their mm-hmm. own stars of their own adventure. And it ends with them driving off a cliff. And so a largely when I sold the book, I was like, well, what would happen if they didn't drive off the cliff? <laughs> like, what would happen if they're, like, they just kept driving? Like, that's, what, that's the story I was looking for. It felt Amazing. like there was nothing else out there. You describe in um, the essay about motherhood Mm -hmm. that you come to this realization, ironically, when you're visiting your sister who had just given birth to her third child. Mm -hmm. You sort of describe that of waiting to see if some maternal instinct would kick in. Yeah, I think it's so many shades of gray. I have a lot of children in my life, which I always like Mm -hmm. to say, because I think sometimes the decision not to have kids gets framed for women as if you don't have kids, you don't get any kids in your life. And I have many children in my life. My goddaughter lives downstairs for me. So I'm very, Mm -hmm. I'm quite good with children and I enjoy them. So I just, my youngest nephew is perfect. He's he's literally, Mm -hmm. if you were going to find a child to convince somebody to have a kid, (laughs) it's him. He's so, he was born that way. He was just wonderful. And so I just recall sitting there and I just turned 40. So this was all, you sort of faced, you've, you've crossed that Rubicon and you're like, well, I'm 40 now. Like, the time if you're going to have a kid you have to make that decision right this second like forget about the relationship forget about the husband yeah forget about anything you have to like decide to have a kid immediately and i just remember sitting alone with my nephew and i'm looking at him thinking like like it was felt like a showdown in like a western like i <laughs> i'm like is are you willing to say no to this for the rest of your life like are, not just say no i kept asking myself are you going to be okay if you don't have this that was really the question i was facing cuz that's yes. really what this decision comes down to but i just needed to like really stare down if i wanted to get pregnant and have a child of my own physically was i okay if that didn't happen and i would literally stare at my nephew and think okay like are you sure? And every day I came to the same conclusion, like every mm-hmm. single time. And part of that, I think, is because I had the reality, like theoretically thinking, well, I'd be OK without children. You tend to fall into the trap of the parts of 
children that are really sweet, like when they're really sweet and they love you and they make you cards or babies are so cute to feed. And like there's a whole other 75 percent of that reality, which I have spent plenty Mm -hmm. of time in. And so because I was literally in the middle of that, like I was doing school runs in the morning and packing the lunches and helping with the homework and you know, all the rest of it that I was like, are you going to be okay with this really sweet moment with this baby? And I just thought, yeah, I am. And it made me really reconsider my own life and look at the life I'd built myself, not as a, this is your life until you meet somebody, or this is your life, like while you're waiting for the person to show up, which I think there's a lot of that thinking for women sometimes Mm -hmm. And look at my life as like a thing that I've built on its own that I love, that I value, that has its own merits and that I'm proud of. And if that is the extent of it, that's more than enough for me that I love. Yeah. That I love what it is. And it really helped me rethink my own thinking about my, my life. You know, it's interesting that you also sort of point out that the social role within the support networks mm-hmm. of a single person might be different than that of a married person. Completely. And it's funny because I think we're used to thinking of a single person as somehow outside of support networks, like she's all alone and it's dangerous or she's selfish and she isn't yeah. part of it. In my experience, it's the complete opposite. Really? Yeah. Maybe you're just a really nice person, though. I don't know. Like, what if I'm just going to be a selfish bitch my it's- whole single life? <laughs> Listen, Maureen, you, you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. <laughs> you'll be surprised. I think there's a whole bunch of shifts happening at the same time. At the same time, my parents hit an age where they needed care. Most of my friends were having children for the first time. I was on the hook as the primary person taking care of a very ill parent and another parent that needed assistance. And also my sister was having small children. And because everyone else has those priorities... You tend to be on call for a lot of people at the same time. Mm -hmm. And because you don't have a husband or a child, there's this assumption that you should be available. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Well, also, I can imagine that, say, if you're not necessarily everyone's first phone call, but if you're a million people's second phone call, that adds up. Yes. Um, Some people's first phone calls Mm -hmm. and also many people's second phone calls. Mm -hmm. And I think because a lot of friends of mine's parents are also aging out, this is a a much larger shift that because everyone's having children later and moving more than we used to, people don't have the caregiving infrastructure of parents the way we used to for childcare. So oh, yeah. that's a that's a real factor. And because people are having less children, you have less siblings to rely on. So it's a whole there's a huge all these shifts that are happening. But I I have found myself and I know this of friends of mine who are who are also single that you end up being the support system for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that can be tough when your support system when you come home is just you. It can be great. Yeah. A lot of times I come home and I'm like, I don't want to talk to anybody. And this is fabulous. But that can be hard, too. Unless he's a 20-year-old cowboy yeah. roaming Montana. <laughs> exactly. In that case. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming in, Glenn. Thank you for Just having a reminder, me. everyone, call in. It's 646-494-3590. Um, if you have any really specific questions for Glennis, we'll give her a call or we'll bring her back and find out. Um, <laughs> I only you. charge. <laughs> if you like what you hear, rate and review us on iTunes. Sex Lives is produced by Afim Shapiro and Alana Milner. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you next week, and thanks for listening. 